Street Epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Welcome to Epistemic number 25, Critical Thinking with Kevin Delaplante. We just had this awesome interview with Kevin we just recorded, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Yeah, my name is Reed. I'm your host, and we have Anthony and Dan. What's up, you guys? What's up? Nice to be here. That was a fun talk. It was. It's nice to have an expert who uh, who's interested in the things that we're doing, maybe from an academic perspective. He spends a lot of time trying to boil down the concepts into really consumable, easy to understand cartoons. And uh, if anyone's interested in street epistemology, you'd probably be interested in Kevin's work. So what's been up with you guys lately? Um, I'll start. I've been busy. I've been, I've been going out and doing more interviews. I'm taking a class at a local university. I've been going out with my camera and engaging with people. It's caught the attention of a lot of people, uh, a lot of supporters and a lot of a few people maybe that are worried about what I'm doing. For some reason, I've had both administrators and people like cops and campus security coming up and asking me. There was one time I was out there maybe for two hours and three times during the course of those two hours, somebody came up to ask me what I was doing. So I'm not sure if that's just, uh, they're just on guard and they're just, they're, they're stopping people or if students or faculty are complaining about what I'm doing. I'm not sure, but I think we've got it all worked out. I explained several times what I'm doing. I've directed people to my work. Please go visit my channel. I've assured them that I'm not monetizing my channel or soliciting. And I think I finally put them at ease to the point where the lead of the campus police department uh, gave me a number that I can call before I go out. And I've been doing that for the last couple of days and I haven't had any issues. So maybe that we've, we've crossed the hump, but I've had some really good talks too. And it's not just about supernatural stuff. I've been asking people to pick politics or social justice. I had a really good talk today about gender being a social construct. Yesterday or two days ago, we talked about gun control, that type of thing. Oho. You know the the evil eye. Mm. So the supernatural stuff did, does still come up, but I've been having some really good talks on non-religious claims, which I have to say I find them at the moment more difficult than talking to somebody about God. Maybe because I've been doing that for six years and just a smattering of non-religious topics, but it's it's been a challenge, and I like to be challenged. It's energizing to be like it's a problem to solve. How can I get more effective at using SE in these non-religious situations? So that's kind of what I've been doing. Cool. And you also did a talk last night. How did that go? Yeah, I was invited to the Secular Student Alliance there at the same university. I think it's the fourth or fifth talk I've given to the SSA at this one university over the last several years. I, I try to go back. They, they changed leadership. There's new students coming in and it went great. And what made it good, what made this one stand out compared to all the others that I've given was that uh, at my request and uh, the leadership agreed. We invited some some of the other groups on campus to come to it. There was a big, mm -hmm. a larger promotional effort, and we had a good ten people or so who were from religious organizations on the campus that came and sat in. And by all accounts that I've heard, they really enjoyed it. Um, one pe person who's I think an author of an apologetics book made a post after she friend requested me saying that there was nothing that I said last night that she disagreed with that she wished more people approached the challenges that we face in this manner. So it was a really great endorsement, I think, of what we're doing. And it was the highlight of my day yesterday. I think, you know, going, giving that talk and then getting that kind of feedback later was just fantastic. I got to ask Anthony, I didn't realize you had other groups on campus. Did anybody ask about me? <laughs> 
Did anybody ask about you? Did I come up at all in any conversations? No. At the meeting with the SSA? Yeah. There was kind of an offhand reference. Um, People said, did you ever run into somebody who later contacted you to say they don't believe it anymore? Okay. So there was sort of a, I did mention that there are some instances where I've met people on camera and then followed up with them later. And they did mention that SE was was an important step in their journey and that type of thing. So that came up, but specifically, no. Okay. Just curious because some of those groups that came on to visit were probably groups I used to run with. So I don't know. <laughs> this one seemed, it wasn't, a, so you were a former member of crew or maybe, yeah. I don't know, but yeah, I'm not sure what your status is with crew at this point. You might actually be still be a member for all I know. But um, this was another apologetics group called Ratio Christi, which mm. interestingly, we've, 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 we've butted heads with a few people in the, in that specific organization over the years on and off, like nothing huge, but, but it was neat to um, put some faces to the names uh, that I've seen off and on. And uh, the director of that apologetics group was there at the talk. I spent 20 minutes talking to him even before my talk as we were waiting for the room to open. Um, It was very cordial. He introduced me to a couple that he invited from his hometown and it turned out that that the woman of that couple was uh, was an author, apparently, of writing a book. I actually ordered the book today, earlier mm-hmm. today. Oh wow! So yeah, it was just it was great. It was really good. Nice. What about you, Dan? Yeah. So uh, mostly just been doing the show. Been trying to plan for the Faithless Forum. I've been invited as a speaker there, um, and uh, I'm really excited for that. It's a conference specifically made for atheist YouTube people. Um, and a lot of the people that I met last year actually went there with Anthony um, are going to be back again. And I'm just really excited to be back. It's, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, there's tentative plans for me to go to American Atheists as well. It's, there's some details that have been sorted out with the uh, Atheist Community of Austin that I'm going to be sorting out tomorrow. So thankfully, that'll be done with. Also, um, recently on Truth Wanted, one of my favorite episodes I've done so far was two weeks ago. I had a Christian as my co-host, which was really, really fun. And I think everyone who watched it agreed. It was so good. It, I, it's so hard to explain, but just the energy was really good. The conversations were really interesting because I'm, there's, I'm so used to talking to people who think the same way that I do about a lot of these things. And I'm glad I can share a space with someone who, yeah, does share some things that I agree with, but actually disagrees with me in several areas that we can kind of discuss and um, I don't want to say debate on, but just analyze together. Um, and I want to do more things like that. This week I'm, I'm having Mimsy from uh, Mimsy Vids, who's an ex-Muslim. Um, I want to her to talk about her experiences and stuff because I definitely want to break away from the trope of we're all just white guys <laughs> talking about <laughs> our experiences with Christianity. You know, that's kind of um, a stigma that comes up with atheist conversations. Um, so I, I want to bring the conversation broader to not only other religious topics, but also, as you know, even sometimes political topics. We talked about economics a little bit last week, which I wasn't as prepared for as I could have been. But, you know, just kind of broadening horizons a little bit. Would you ever bring a conspiracy theorist on as a co-host? Uh, as a co-host, I don't know. Um, we've had one or two conspiracy calls. Yeah. And I want to get more of those. Um, if there's somebody that I'm comfortable with and somebody that I'm okay with, because there's issues of platforming that I also have to consider, even as small with the channel as mine. I don't know. I don't know any conspiracy theorists right now that I would be comfortable 
having on. I, I think it would have to be somebody that I knew enough to where that the whole thing wouldn't just explode in my face. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not just you, it's, uh, you know, the ACA and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. I have a little bit of, of that kind of legal problems and stuff too. You know? For sure. Yeah. It's, it could be a reflection on the ACA. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's anyone listening to epistemic who, you know, somebody that, that is a conspiratorial minded yet handles themselves professionally, perhaps might be the nicest way of putting it. Reach out to Dan please at least get them to call in. We definitely need more of those <laughs> kinds of conversations for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. And for me, I tried out a new spot last weekend uh, to do some SE. I usually go out to Running Canyon here in Hollywood, but it was super busy at the bottom of the uh, trail where I usually go to. Instead, I went to the, the very top of the trail. I had to drive up the mountain. It's a really nice view. Uh, I just released a video today. So you can see the view from there and it's really, it's really nice. I'm going to try to do it again uh, this, this Saturday. Yeah, I'll just give an intro of Kevin in, in general. He has a master and PhD in philosophy from Western University. He's just an independent critical thinking educator and consultant. He focuses on the nature and importance of critical thinking, the nature of cognitive biases, and the negative impacts they can have on judgment and decision making, and the effect of tribalism and polarization on our ability to think critically, and de-biasing strategies that can help to reduce the negative impacts of such influences. All right, here we are. Uh, hello, Mr. Dillaplant. How's it going? Very good. Thanks very much, Reed. Hi, everybody. Hello. Nice to have you here. Yeah, great to have you on. Thanks very much. So the first question right out of the bat is, what is the difference between critical thinking and rational persuasion? Right. And you're asking that question because I use that term rational persuasion in the earlier episodes of my Argument Ninja podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Because people weren't really using, that's not really a term. And in those episodes, I was talking about teaching, wanting to teach rational persuasion. And is that different from critical thinking per se? Uh, I think so. I think critical thinking is, um, is defined by a broader set of uh, goals and values. And rational persuasion is a skill set that I think is, is fundamental to the pursuit of those goals and values. So um, critical thinking for me is about the pursuit of uh, true beliefs, more true beliefs is good, fewer false beliefs, that's good, uh, wise decisions. And the other part of critical thinking is really about thinking for oneself, thinking independently, autonomously. And uh, so I would say that anything that promotes these goals or inhibits these goals is part of the domain of critical thinking. So that's a very broad umbrella because it includes everything from internal psychological factors to environmental factors, social factors, and so forth. I take rational persuasion to be a skill set. And the way I've defined that, that was distinctive about the way I was approaching critical thinking in this podcast, was that it combines two traditions, two approaches to argumentation and persuasion. Basically, it combines what are, have historically been treated separately, that argumentation as a set of skills that tells you how to reason well, you know, where the goal is the pursuit of truth or knowledge or wisdom or virtue, going back to Plato and Aristotle. And then the idea of argumentation as a tool of social persuasion, where I'm trying to get a group of people to agree with me on some point or a course of action. And the Greeks also had that notion too. Aristotle strongly had this notion of um, argumentation as a type of social persuasion. 
Uh, but he called it rhetoric and he bound it up within that broader category of rhetoric. So within rhetoric, which is the art of, of persuasion, you had logos and ethos and pathos. And logos was the art of rational disputation. And then pathos is about you know evoking feelings and emotions. And ethos is about how you're viewed in the eyes of your audience, one's character or how you identify with them. And all these things together combine to formulate a kind of persuasive communications philosophy or strategy. And argumentation, it gets embedded within that cluster. But these historically have been taught separately. That is, the philosophical tradition has run with logic and argumentation as a normative theory of, of good reasoning, quite independently, really, of the other tradition, which views argumentation as a sub-branch of rhetoric. And those have developed along independent but parallel paths for thousands of years, literally. And so you have developments in rhetoric and developments in the art of argumentative persuasion that have you know, gone through the Middle Ages and up through the early modern period and into the 20th century. And then developments in theories of logic and theories of philosophy of science and what counts as justified true belief and new approaches to justification that came out of the scientific revolution and in the modern period with the rise of formal logic and a whole different set of skills and tools formulating the notion of valid reasoning. Highly influential, but almost having nothing to do with the psychology of persuasion, the psychology of social influence. So if I wanted to study that, I would have to go to a different university department. Then if I wanted to study the foundations of logic, I would go to a philosophy department or a math department. Totally different. So when I was like a teacher and I was a philosophy prof, and I met people who were in the English department or in the communication studies department who study argumentation and do a field called argument studies. No one in my philosophy program did that. We had never been introduced to such a thing as argumentation studies because that's an interdisciplinary field, social science, psychology, logic, philosophy altogether. Whereas the problems that are addressed with normative logic, both formal and informal logic, were sort of conceived and handled separately. This is interesting because in my university experience, I actually experienced the same thing. I have a communication background and you're absolutely right. There is a silo of knowledge between studies of formal logic and studies of rhetoric and argumentation. I took rhetoric and argumentation. Um, I never took any formal philosophy classes ever in my time at university stuff. So everything I've learned from philosophy has been coming from reading books and doing kind of my own personal research. But you'd think that there'd be more of a tie between the two. But right now, it, it, I, at least my experience, it, it wasn't. No, there isn't. And there's a historical story to tell, which is probably a subject for a different episode about the separation of why. There's always been a suspicion among philosophers of psychological approaches to persuasion because it... Um, it reeks of like manipulation or it's the wrong kind of justification. Like if your goal is the pursuit of truth and knowledge, then if I'm, if I'm giving a spin on my argument that's appealing to these psychological factors rather than the pure sort of content of the argument, then all of a sudden, you know, Plato would tell you that you're doing something, you know, fishy there. He doesn't like that. He finds that suspicious. He'll call that, you'll, if you do that too much, he'll call you a sophist. You're engaged in sophistry, which is the, you know, the art of persuasive speech for its own sake. And all of a sudden that becomes a slur. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's more of a story to tell. But the fact is that I was teaching critical thinking classes in university programs using the standard textbooks that were standard in the curriculum across, across the country, across North America, because critical thinking as, as an educational movement in higher education really is, is an American innovation of the 1970s and 80s. And a lot of it came out of California because California pushed for 
Well, a lot of it came out of the, the 60s. And um, the university campuses were full of students who were dealing with the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and the, the anti-war movement and the environmental movement. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, important social issues. And you had universities set up by, with pe people where, where they really did want, in fact, a lot of them were sort of 60s radicals who were the young professors teaching in universities who wanted to talk about these issues, to equip the students to think critically about these substantive moral and social issues. But philosophy had very little in the way to offer in that respect, because it was the heyday of formal logic as a high art where the connections to the foundations of mathematics and other sorts of formal moves in epistemology and linguistics, but very little in the way of offering uh, resources for informal reasoning about contemporary social issues. Beyond the sort of normal kind of training and critical reading and writing and, and debate that you would get otherwise. And so there was this movement to bring uh, like a critical thinking movement to start teaching informal reasoning or informal logic. And that started what's called the, the informal logic movement in the late 60s. So that's when you had the first textbooks being written that talked about the notion of an informal fallacy. You know, the straw man and the you know, slippery slope and this whole lexicon that we're now familiar with that was in some sense a revival of, of a tradition that went underground in the 19th century. But then you had, so it was taught, but it was taught by philosophers who had philosophical training and not by rhetoricians, not by communications theorists, not by psychologists. So along this, the other tragedy of this, of the story is that along this period, the 40 years from like the 1960s and 70s to now, say, psychology was undergoing a cognitive revolution and psychology was discovering cognitive biases and psychology was studying the psychology of attitude formation. And there's a whole field called the psychology of persuasion that goes back this whole time. And none of that was being taught or introduced to the curriculum about, about argumentation in either discipline. So it was like these three fields not talking to each other. When I was teaching critical thinking for like, you know, the 15 years when I was doing a class every year, I came to discover, man, this is nuts. I keep having to introduce articles from psychology, articles from rhetoric, articles from philosophy, articles from whatever, science in order to get the coverage and the understanding that the, the discipline requires. That's the sense in which I thought, okay, we need to have some kind of term for the integrated combination of principles of, of, of good reasoning that are integrated with principles of the psychology of persuasion and influence. So that's what I called rational persuasion. But it was just a name that really identified a problem rather than denoting anything specific. Gotcha. So it's basically these two different separate categories of philosophy or and just non-philosophy, which includes psychology. These two things were separate, and now we're trying to bring these things together to try to be able to figure out how to best persuade people rationally using all this new information and putting it all together. And I see SE as a kind of testing ground for all of this. I've, I'm trying to keep this idea of the elephant and the rider in mind when I'm talking with people now. That's, mm -hmm. that's been what I've been trying to do for the past two or three years. So yeah, you can maybe go into more of that type of idea of uh, elephant and rider or, the, or also the, the core belief model. What is that about as well? Right. So when you mentioned, I assume that your audience is probably familiar with the elephant and the rider. Have you, have you talked about that on, on this show before? I think we have, yeah. A little bit? Well, I mean, it's, this was like Jonathan Haidt's version of the system one, system two distinction in cognitive biases and heuristics program. But he has a particular take on it. So he, he introduced this uh, metaphor in his book, um, the happiness hypothesis, mm -hmm. which was, uh, his, this is before the righteous mind. 
which was, um, what's the subtitle? Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom. Right. So the writer is the rational decision-making, conscious goal-following part of, the, of our human nature. And the elephant is the instinctive, automatic, non-conscious, emotional, driven part of our nature. And uh, this is metaphor for sort of dual process theories of cognition. But as a model of behavioral change, he has a strong view about this. His view is that whenever there's a conflict between the rider and the elephant, the elephant always wins. So you, uh, if you, even though your head might tell you, you have to pursue this goal here, if the emotional part of you isn't aligned with that, you just won't do it. And similarly, if you're trying to persuade someone to change a belief or change a uh, behavior, even if you can get them to rationally assent, to the desirability of the behavior, unless these other parts of their motivational psychology are aligned in the right way, they're just not going to change. And he has a strong view about this, that he really is a skeptic about the role of the rational thought processes in being causes of changes in behavior. He thinks they're kind of like epiphenomena. That is, the, the, the real cause is something deeper, something in a sort of, uh, you know, uh, more emotional, more instinctual, more sub, subconscious processes. And then most of our reasons talk is a kind of post hoc rationalization. So that's a thesis about the relationship between reason and emotion and the causes of behavior, which one could dispute. Not, not every psychologist holds that view. But the value of the elephant and the rider metaphor, everyone's seen the value of that. And it didn't get popular until um, the Heath brothers wrote this book uh, called Switch back in, I don't know, 2012 or something like that, that took this idea and they talked about, you know, behavioral change for like business contexts, you know, direct the rider, motivate the elephant, clear the path or shape the path. I think that was the slogan that they, that they ran with there. So, so as, a, as a model, I would say this is one of my critical thinking toolbox things. I reach in and I need to have a bunch of tools in my toolbox that will help with these problems of critical thinking uh, and persuasion. That's one of them. You should have that in your toolkit, the elephant, the writer, but it's not the whole story. It's, it's just one, one useful model among, among many. Yeah. And another model you recommend is this core belief model. Yeah. So the core belief model, this is a kind of a simple observation. You, this is like armchair psychology, armchair persuasion psychology that anybody can do. If you just reflect on the fact that some beliefs matter more to us than others, some beliefs, whether they're, they're true or false, matters more to us than other beliefs do. Like, I might believe that Natalie Portman was born in Israel, and my wife might believe she was born in the U.S., and I don't really care which of us is right about that. If Wikipedia says she's born in Israel, then that'll settle the issue, and you're not going to, you know, it doesn't take much to change that belief, because we hold it so loosely. It's just not consequential to us. But... If there's a belief like, you know, climate change is a serious problem, all of a sudden, that matters more to me. If I'm wrong about that, that matters more to me. So that means that the, that's a harder belief to change, that the standard of evidence is going to be higher, it's going to be stricter, but I'm still open to it. I'm willing to engage with, you know, arguments that say it's not nearly as big an issue as people think it is. I want to hear those arguments. I'm open to that, but you're going to have to be pretty compelling to go over that, that hump. But then there are some beliefs that are even more central, that are hardest to change. Those are the ones I think of as the core of our belief network. They're the ones that are somehow tied to our, our identity, our sense of who we are as a person, as a human being. So if I believe about myself that I, you know, I may not be perfect, but I try to be a good person, right? That's pretty important to me. 
if I'm wrong about that, man, I'm wrong about a lot about something. It's going to take an awful lot. So, and you can think about other sorts of beliefs that are, that are part of the core, their basic stance about who we are or what our fundamental goals are, about what our place is in the grand scheme of things, how we should live, what grounds our self-worth, you know, stuff like that. So this gives you the tools for imagining uh, your the beliefs as a network of connected beliefs where it's a hierarchically structured network, where at the periphery, the outside, you have beliefs that are, don't matter that much to us and therefore easier to change. And then there's this intermediate level where they, they matter a bit more to us and so they're harder to change. And at the core, the core are these beliefs that are matter the most to us and therefore the hardest to change. And typically then, part of this model is that around the core, you're going to have a set of defensive mechanisms. Defensive mechanisms that are designed to protect and preserve the core. Why? Because if you destabilize the core, you destabilize something that's important to one's, the, so one's integrity and conception as a human being. So things like confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, deflection, all these things are like activated, they're triggered. When you get starts coming in and, and you get, you know, sniffing close to the core, the alarm bells go off and all these mechanisms start triggered. So with this, this is my, my, this is my, uh, my core belief network model. Um, it's a simple, you know, picture, but it helps strategically with the challenge of persuasion and argumentation because it automatically compels us to ask two questions. Before you do anything, you should ask these two questions. One is, if I want to change this person's belief, where is that belief located in their network? Is it near the periphery? Is it near the, the middle? Or is it near the core? Because the strategy, your persuasion strategy has got to be different depending on the, that answer. And the second question, which, is, which isn't often asked enough, I think, is how do we know where the belief is located in the network? Because you can make an assumption that someone's belief in God or belief in the divinity of, of Jesus or some other thing is really important if they identify as a Christian, for example. You think, oh, I've got these assumptions about what their core beliefs are. But you never know. You should treat these as empirical hypotheses to be tested. Because some people hold different their beliefs differently. And I, I think in the podcast where I talked about this, I talked about a, a guy who... Um, was a Christian, he was a Catholic, he went to church every, every Sunday, but it turned out he could care less about any theological issues. He was not interested in those. They didn't matter. In fact, he was happy to countenance the possibility that Jesus was just a guy who never rose from the dead. It turned out that what was important to this guy was simply his identity with uh, a religious tribe that went back a long way, provided him a sense of community and foundation and cultural identity more than anything else. So if you thought that his theological beliefs were central to his core identity, you would have been mistaken in his case. But for some, someone else, a devout evangelical, say, who was really devout, yes, the divinity of Jesus would be central to their, you know, you know part of the core probably. So Anthony and I go out and do these street epistemology interviews, and I think that relates to this core belief model where we want to focus our interviews on beliefs that are more to people's core, uh, you deeply have beliefs like that. Yeah, I think Kevin is kind of spot on there. I, I never quite thought about it in those terms, but very often I will run into somebody who says that they think that something is true, that you would think that it's in their core, their core uh, network, I think is what you refer to it as, or the- Core belief network, yeah. Somewhere in, their, in the core of their belief where it's, it really matters to them. 
Yeah, like you think, well, that's that's a, such a fundamental position. That's such a fundamental belief. It must be core to them. But then a few questions later, they tend to reveal that it isn't really all that important to them. So I, I can I can relate to what you're saying there. The thing that I, I tend to like about SE Street Epistemology is is how the act of asking questions does help you get a sense of how important this view is to them and perhaps in turn get a sense of where in the network that is. So yeah, I think that's good. Um, what I also like about this too is that it seems like you're taking really difficult concepts and breaking them down into really simple metaphors, simple designs. And I see that in your videos too. Well, I'm a big, uh, the, the farther I, I am away from academia, the more I, I see the value of simplicity. Keep it simple, break it down, make a little diagram like you do. I don't know how long you spend editing your videos, but I'm always charmed by the, the visuals that you have going on that, that explain these very difficult concepts in a simple way. Well, I'm a sort of frustrated uh, cartoonist, right? So I don't, these were sort of back in, the, in my early days when I was thinking of doing, actually, when I was a, a grad student in philosophy, I was drawing a lot. In high school, I was thinking of either going into arts and maybe illustration or science. I had one of those art-science splits. I read a lot of comics. I enjoyed drawing comics. I loved the, the, great, the classic cartoons. But I really also liked the people who could communicate ideas in cartoon form, like visually, like Larry Gonick's, you know, History of the World series. Or, you know, there's a, there's a, a bunch of people who, who do this. And so when I was a grad student, I thought, okay, here's an idea. I'm going to do this for 10 years. I'm going to be an academic for 10 years. I'll get my PhD. I'll get tenure somewhere. I'll get the credentials associated with that. And then I'll go out and I'll become, and I'll quit and I'll become like an educational cartoonist. And I'll just do philosophy cartoons, comics or stuff like that. So this is an idea I had back in grad school. Of course, you don't tell people that too much. It turns out that if you share this with people, they think you're not serious as an academic. And, and in academia, you get socialized into, or you have to convey the idea that you're serious about the profession. You can't tell people that you intend to quit in 10 years. You, you would never be hired Oh yeah. in the first place, right? You can't do that. Did you ever get pushback on people if you said, I'm interested in presenting these difficult concepts in a really simplistic way? I had some experience of that, but it's a different, if you're in a teaching environment, they applaud you and they reward you for teaching that, you know, the students find compelling and interesting. Oh, good. And if you're giving talks at conferences, everyone appreciates a, a presentation that's a bit more visually engaging than the average. But when it comes to developing reputation within your field as an expert. I mean, there is a sort of culture of smartness within academia and philosophy is quite bad for this. It may be good for it. It depends on how you think, but coming across as smart is, is a big deal. And one of the ways you do that is you're just a little bit obscure so that it's kind of hard to follow you. You're mm -hmm. clear. It's the combination of being clear and rigorous, but also your line of argumentation is subtle enough that it's intellectually demanding. And when you get that together, people are impressed by you. It's a purely phenomenological effect, right? It's like, I, I think this is important. I think this is clever. And I like the way he responds to questions. Then all of a sudden, you are at the top of this pecking order. The, if, I, if you do what I would, uh, if I would do with uh, a broader audience and have cartoons and have the simplest version of this possible. So that there's no way anybody could confuse what I'm saying or the, or the argument. You would be regarded as, um, hmm, 
well, it was very entertaining, um, but I understood everything. I actually had that as, as a job talk. I was in a job interview. This was before my, my tenure days where I gave a talk. Actually, it was a talk on a topic I'm going to be talking about is on the theories about the collapse of complex societies. This is coming up on the podcast in a couple of episodes. I, I gave a job talk on this. One of the um, complaints I heard from my host was that uh, he heard someone say, I understood all of it as that kind of complaint. Wow. Like it wasn't, therefore it wasn't, you know, deep. Anyways, <laughs> so in that sense, but once you're out in the world where you're actually making a living off of the content that you make, Mm-hmm. None of that matters. All that matters is there people are engaged by it. Are they learning from it? Can they extracting value from it? That's all that matters. And so you're free to be as simple as you, as you want. Which do you enjoy more now? Where you're at now or the, the academic background that you have? Well, I, I mean, I, I made choices to leave that environment in order to make my life situation better overall. And, and it is. So I'm happier now than I was back then. But I really value the time I spent. There are things that I, I can do now that I could not have done if I had left after only, say, one year or, or five years. The fact that I spent 16 years, 20 years if you add up grad school and you know, all that stuff, uh, means that I'm in a position to do things that otherwise I couldn't. So I, I value and appreciate that very much. But I, I like that you know, I didn't die when, when I was 35, so you have a chance to sort of <laughs> see what this other chapter of your life looks like. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So let's, let's go back to this concept of rational persuasion. You kind of uh, think of this as a type of martial art or an analogy to martial art. And then you have a section of an episode talking about street epistemology as like a soft martial art related to rational yep. persuasion. Want to talk about that? So um, you all know there's this long history of using martial arts analogies and combat metaphors to talk about various aspects of verbal debate. Um, that's a knockout argument, right? <laughs> destroyed destroyed that objection was devastating rhetorically oh they're they're very slippery they're hard to catch uh the debate was a draw all these game-like combat there are several books called titled verbal judo that identify training and rhetorical and debate so metaphors there my position turns out is actually quite a bit stronger than that so my position is that in the sense that it's the philosophical sense that it's it's more likely to be false <laughs> It says more things. So I actually think that uh, uh, critical thinking is a martial art or that one should view it as literally a martial art, not just like a martial art, not just analogy to a martial art, but the definition can encompass it. So here's, here's the sense. Um, martial art has two parts of it. There's the martial part and the art part. The art part is easy. The art part involves, you know, rational persuasion and critical thinking involves a, sort of, a set of complex skills that um, take training to learn, practice and training. And they're, um, sometimes you can practice them by yourself, they're internal, but otherwise they're often engaged in interlocutor and partner relationship where there's something at stake. You're trying to achieve, so you're trying to win something over there. So when you're talking in the, in the persuasion mode, you're actually, the combat metaphor makes some sense. But I view like the martial context of critical thinking to be the, the important part. So martial context has to do with the, context that associates with combat or the threat of war or warrior virtues or stuff. And for me, it's the idea that um, 
these critical thinking values, true beliefs, wise decisions, thinking for yourself, if those are impaired, then you risk harm to yourself and to other people. That is a culture that doesn't value those principles is, is a harmful culture, or at least it doesn't support those particular values that people care about. But you actually have people who are, can be harmed in other more tangible ways. If you make bad decisions, I mean, b- bad decisions ruin lives every day. Beliefs that you are earnestly following on the basis of false assumptions or irrational views hurt people every day. And when you realize that there's this whole environment of messaging that surrounds us at all times, the persuasive messaging that comes from the media, comes from government, comes from corporations, advertising, our peers, our social groups, our families, most of that persuasive messaging is intended to make us uh, think, do, or feel something. And most of it is intended to serve the interests of people other than ourselves. None of that is designed to support one's genuine interests and values. They're trying to persuade you for the benefit of some other goal or purpose. That environment is a potentially harmful environment. If you are totally unprotected, if you are totally vulnerable to exploitation, to manipulation, and so on. So there's a self-defense aspect to this, right? Where you have, you know, kind of logical self-defense where a set of mental habits and background knowledge and something that, that can protect you from the harmful effects, the worst effects of this kind of negative persuasive messaging. But there's also an offensive part of it. Like if you want to exert your influence in, in the world, if you want to be empowered to advocate for the causes and values that you care about, then the same set of tools becomes an offensive tool offensive in the sense that you are now the active agent. You're not just protecting yourself from harm, but you're actually trying to achieve certain goals. And those very tools also have the capacity to inflict harm. That is, if you have no moral scruples and you know, and you study all the psychology of persuasion and influence, and you're a total cad, right? There's no end to the harm that you can inflict. So just like a weapon, you can hurt people with it, self-defense. It can be used to empower you. So that's, you know, a sense that, that's a sense in which I think there is a genuine martial context for struggle for our intellectual autonomy, intellectual agency. That's a real thing. And the other part of this is that I think that any definition of a martial art that, that would include all of the traditional Asian martial arts, karate, kung fu, and so on, all the modern sports-based martial arts like taekwondo, judo, all the softer, more internal martial arts like aikido or tai chi, all the Western martial arts like boxing, all the weapons-based martial arts like fencing, how to use a knife, how to use a firearm. Anyone who does mixed martial arts or does like a combat training will treat firearm training as a martial art. No doubt about it. It's not traditional, you know, Asian martial art, but it's, it's included in, in that thing. Any definition includes modern military combat arts, which includes things like st- tactics and strategy and logistics as part of a, the training behind the martial arts of, of modern day combat, all of a sudden it's no longer physical violence inflicting on people. It's not even at contact, right? It's the whole cluster of skills that involved in being able to, you know, respond to the threat of violence, the, the possible threat of violence and defend yourself against that and possibly retaliate. And then you include something like psychological operations that are part of military combat arts where you have persuasion campaigns to demoralize the enemy. We've been doing it for centuries. Now, if your definition of martial arts includes all that, what I'm talking about fits in there. 
It's not excluded. You see what I mean? Do you think that there are some people that shouldn't use these tools, that it would, they would be dangerous to have them? Or is this something that you're advocating that everybody use? It, should this tool set or this con these concepts be off limits to some people, do you think? I think that if it's, it's not that, all that different from teaching someone how to use a firearm. Uh, there are some people who shouldn't be taught how to use firearms or shouldn't have access to them, yes. Now, it's a little bit different here in that, well, people who have... And again, no scruples can do a lot of harm with this stuff. But also the core attributes of being truth-seeking, making better decisions for ourselves, independence of thought and autonomy and agency in our own intellectual lives. Those are attributes of human beings that we value as people. That is a part of what makes us human. Part of what it means to treat someone as a human being with respect and agency is to see that they're entitled <laughs> to the resources necessary to fulfill those, those goals. So I think there's a prima facie case that everyone's entitled to the resources to be able to develop their critical thinking and reasoning skills. But that, prima, that case is only prima facie. That is, it's not ab an absolute case that everyone should be given all of the resources to better, even if they're like, you know, psychopaths or they're dictators. And uh, the more that they learn about the psychology of persuasion, the more harm they can do. No, you don't, you don't, you don't need to give them more information. Now, what, what I do think, and I, when I was in China for a visit two years ago, I, gave, I was there for two weeks giving a series of talks at an institution there. And it's funny because the audience, the grad students in China know they're in China. It's an authoritarian culture. And they don't have a concept of critical thinking the way that we do here in, in the U.S., but they recognized the value of what I was talking about. And afterwards, one of them stood up and asked me, do, you, do I think that every person has the capacity to learn to develop these skills? Because he thought that was unlikely. And I said, no, no, not everyone has the same capacity to develop these skills. You know what? What I do think is that everyone, for those who have an interest to develop those skills, they're entitled to the resources to be able to do that because that is a, an individual good, but it's also a public good. Namely, in general, just like fresh water and food and education, healthcare, there are certain goods that if they're distributed widely, make everyone better off. And this is one of those goods. So, um, um, you know, that's kind of the view I have. Yeah. It's funny. I've, I've actually run into some people who, when they heard the words critical thinking, they scoffed. Like they, they thought it was a big joke, that it's, it's some conspiracy or a way to teach the kids to not listen to their parents and this type of thing. Um, I think they were very fundamental um, believers or something. Have you ever come across people like that? And if you did, what would you recommend? Like, how would you introduce somebody to critical thinking that maybe they've heard things about it and they're skeptical of it, maybe even concerned about it, worried about it, that type of thing? Yeah, well, I do know where this comes from um, because there's, um, so there is a history and especially in the North America of conservative religious people having an ambivalent relationship to this language of critical thinking and intellectual independence. Part of it is theological. Many of these views have a view that says that human beings aren't capable of discerning real truths, independent of the aid of God. So part of divine grace to be made in the image of God is that we have the capacity for rational insight into the world, but it's very limited. We, it is limited and corrupted by our human baser nature. So Real truth, like religious truth, spiritual truth, the truth that is 
relevant to salvation is only possible through the grace of God. Now, if you hold a view like that, where the only way you can read the Bible and interpret it in a way that's truthful, you know, is through a kind of act of divine revelation. So with that view, any kind of worldview that promotes the idea that human beings are, are, are self-sufficient or able to their true goals and values and, and achieve, you know, happiness in the world or grace or, or salvation through their own intellectual efforts is, is a fool's errand. So they want to keep people away from that, but they have to dance the line, right? Because they also don't want to say, think that they're squandering the gift of rational insight that God has given us. Mm. So yes, use our minds to make the world a better place, but don't think, don't have the hubris to think that you can discern the nature of God and God's will for us through this tool. So, that, so that, that's part of the story. Do you ever notice that, Dan? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's definitely a fear of like, I'm just a human being who is fallible and my fallibility is what's causing me to have these doubts and stuff because I don't understand the true truth. I don't understand the great majesty of things that are beyond my comprehension and, you know, things that are, I guess, God's will, if we're going to go in a specifically Christian context. But, you know, I have a question because we have different people in our culture and different people in our society that are espousing this idea of critical thinking and maybe rational persuasion as well, but who actually come from different sides of the aisle and different sides of culture. I'm, I'm using an example of like Ben Shapiro, for example. Um, I like to think that I use critical thinking and that I am this rational person and I try to espouse that. Um, but I disagree with someone who Ben Shapiro, who also says that he's using critical thinking, who's trying to use the same tools that I'm using um, or maybe Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. These are all people who, who say these things, but they disagree and, and have these different points of view on a vast variety of different topics. Um, and so to say that I'm just being, I'm just being a critical thinker, it's almost not even a value neutral thing to say anymore. It's almost a thing to say, well, this is how I'm backing up the way that I think I am because I'm using this critical thinking, you guys, you guys aren't doing this. And I'm wondering do you have a view on that? Do you have a way of better discerning who is and isn't doing that? Or, or even should we even call ourselves critical thinkers? Because there's a lot of people using this term that we may not support or, or you know, endorse. So the worst case isn't, uh, you know, the fact that you'd have people as far apart as you know, like Richard Dawkins and... Rush Limbaugh. Okay, right. <laughs> um, take... Take like the, the farther extreme, who all will say that they're uh, representing critical thinking values here. I see that, uh, certainly. And um, it has been, his, so historically, the, the term, the rise of the term in the 70s got all of a sudden, it's a term like, I'm a good parent, you know. To be a critical thinker is, is a good thing. It's an honorific term. Uh, and so you would like to be able to appropriate it whenever you can as a sort of status enhancing thing or as a way of, you know, you know, as a tool of persuasion itself by using the label or, or to say that you're not thinking critically as a tool of dismissing as a kind of tool, also a tool of persuasion. And different groups claim it. Um, well, I think the truth is that what they all have in common that merits the term is that if you ask them, ask people one at a time, 
does it matter to you if your beliefs are true or false? They'll say, yeah, it matters to me. Okay, does it matter to you if your decisions are wise or unwise or reasonable or not or have good outcomes or not for you? Yeah, that matters to me. Does it matter to you that you can think for yourself, that you can give an account of your own beliefs and values that's really yours, that's not necessarily, you're not parroting the views of some other source or your upbringing or your media or your peer group or your church? Yeah, that matters to me too. Then critical thinking matters to you. Then to embrace it, then you should reward them for that. But what I, what I think is important is to try to break it down and say, because then remind them of, of, of what's involved here that the label itself is empty. The label itself used as a, as a club or as, or as a badge of honor is just a tool of persuasion. Get down one level below and talk about what these components actually are. And then you can have a conversation like, so why do you think this is true? Mm -hmm. Like what kind of evidence do you have for that? Or on what basis did you make this decision? Or how do you know that this viewpoint that you've arrived at isn't something that you've internalized from your upbringing, right? How deep does it go? You know, all of a sudden now you're playing the game that you guys play, mm -hmm. right? Analyzing the architecture of, of belief. And then who gets to claim the label is sort of beside the point. Yeah, I think the label could be, could be off-putting to people. It could be confusing, but I think you're right. If you just ask them questions about their normal everyday activities, if somebody knocks on the door and is willing to sell you something they want to they want you to buy their bug killing service or something you tend to use a little critical thinking when you're facing these everyday occurrences and um, maybe just calling attention to situations where they are using critical thinking they they just may not like calling it that but it is a way to protect ourselves from being taken advantage of and we do it all the time we we tend to if we notice that our mom was sending a check off every month to some some fortune teller or something like that, we'd probably want to step in and, and ask her why she's doing that. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's something that we do all the time, but then um, it is stigmatized in some way by some people. It is. It is. I don't know how many people, I think it's a pretty marginal group who has a bad association with the term critical thinking. There are probably more people that don't know exactly what it means than hold a position on it in a negative light, I would think. Right. So on the right, you know, when there are organizations that flaunt the label, a center for critical inquiry or whatever, or a lobby group that does critical thinking advocacy, and you know that they tend to be opposed to most of the worldview of, a, say, a religious organization or whatever, then, then you can sort of, it's not surprising that they would associate that kind of rhetoric with with an anti. That's a good point. I mean, this is something I get all the time. There's a reason why there's a, a strategic reason why, for example, I never um, come out as a theist or an atheist or anything. I don't, it's never been a part of my public brand to take positions on political issues or, or theological issues or even on deep philosophical issues. I do that because I want people who have an interest in critical thinking to feel like they can come to me and not be judged by me. I do have a lot of people who are religious who reach out to me. Yeah. Because okay. they think I'm religious. Mm -hmm. Just because I haven't said negative things about religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times when people will start a conversation, an email saying, 
as a person of faith, how do you deal with the blah, blah, blah? <laughs> and I have, and I've never said anything of, of that sort. So it is, it says something about the culture, about the, the valences within the culture on, on this, this issue. But I like that part of it. I like that being able to attract that and have conversations that, that maintain, this is a, a you know, part of street epistemology, having non-judgmental conversations that are respectful, that are genuinely curious about how people come to the views they have and how they feel about them are, are really productive. I mean, that's a great resource you have, whether you want to change your mind or not. So I, 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 do, I do sympathize with groups that have developed this association. I think it's not their fault. I think it's because the association is out there and they're, they're subject to a bias or they feel that where they feel like I'm entering a space where because I'm of my ideological or religious or other views, I'm going to be viewed as not a critical thinker. If I was going to sell a product to conservatives, I probably wouldn't call it a green deal or something like that. There'd probably be that negative association built into it or, or maybe like, maybe labels can be repackaged or, or used in a way to make it more productive. Like, like I'm thinking we talk about global warming all the time, but if we called it population overload or the browning of America or something like that, maybe it would actually be more effective in, in engaging the people that we need to have come aboard this, this worry that we have. Yeah. The power of words, it is, a, it is important. Yeah, branding, I suppose, right? We're talking about sort of branding, labeling. So we're talking about these various different groups, which I think relates to tribalism, which you have had a, a bunch of videos and podcast episodes on. So how does tribalism relate to, to critical thinking? Well, it was just inevitable that this would come up. So critical thinking involved, you know, if you define it the way I do, then anything that is an impediment to pursuing those critical thinking goals is part of the, of, of the domain. I mean, it seems to be all in the news now over the past, you know, five years, everyone talking about our tribal politics and our, uh, the rise of polarization and as a political problem and a social problem. I was interested in the topic, not so much as um, to study the political problem per se, but to see how it, it, how it connects with critical thinking. If you're interested in pursuing critical thinking goals, what should you be understand about tribalism and polarization? What kind of literacy is important? What kind of background knowledge is important? Is there anything you can do to reduce one's vulnerability, to protect yourself, to not be subject to these kinds of things? So that was the incentive for engaging on this kind of exploration of, of, the, of the phenomenon. I mean, the basic idea is that uh, you know, tribal psychology is... Um, fundamental universal feature of human nature. It's an evolved part of our thing, but social polarization is not the same thing. Social polarization is, is a measure of how different we feel we are from one another in, in various respects. And that can be uh, mild and that can be more extreme. And so if you think of the, the polarization as an independent dial that you can dial up, what it does is it aggravates the tendencies in our basic tribal psychology. And exacerbates them. So the basic tribal psychology is that is that we have this disposition to make judgments of of various kinds, normative judgments based on group affiliations. So judgments about who what's rational and irrational, and also moral judgments about what, what's right or wrong or good or bad. 
So when we identify with these tribal groups, groups that we share something in common with that, that's meaningful for us, then uh, we're inclined to view the views within the people within those groups in a more positive light than people outside those groups. And you can imagine like an us-them uh, dichotomy, right? Where we're rational, they're irrational. You know, in the more extreme cases, we're good, they're bad, we're right, they're wrong. Our views are justified, their views are, are not uh, justified. And this tendency gets aggravated by the degree of polarization we feel, how different we feel we are from these groups, how other they are to us. And what we've seen is over the last 40 years in American context, especially, is a quite a steep rise in social polarization measured along various axes that social scientists study. Peaking in the last recently, where people are really talking about it, for example, the rise of negative partisanship is, is a sort of new mode where if you have two football teams and you're, you, can, you want your team to win, but you don't necessarily have to hate the other team to be a positive partisan, like, yay, my team, but I admire your team. Good job. Keep it up. Next time. Negative partisanship is when you, you want your, your team to win, but you want them to lose more. You hate the, the other side so much. You just, I don't care who wins. I just don't want you to win because you're bad, you're threat, you're, you're dangerous. So the shift is less towards identifying with the great virtues of our tribal side, of our partisan side, and with focusing on the threat and the harm that the other side poses to us. That's negative partisanship. And that has flipped. That's a real thing that social scientists have seen over the past years. And it's always been that way to a certain extent in politics in, in America, where if you're a Republican, you're going to think less well of Democratic Party and, and so, so on. But it wasn't always the case that if you were a Republican, you thought badly of Democratic people. That is, the, those judgments didn't spill over into judgments about the members of the political group. But that's changed. So the survey results now suggest that simply knowing that someone is a member of a different political group makes you feel worse about the neighborhood that you live in. Like if someone moves into your neighborhood, you're told, it's a, let's say you're a Democrat, a, you're a liberal Democrat and a Republican moves in, a conservative. Even if you don't know who they are, you feel uh, less satisfied about your living situation. People don't want their children to marry people of the other party. They don't want to live next door to people of the other party. They don't trust the advice of doctors as much if they learn that their doctor is a member of the, of the other party. It goes on and on and on. So this long empirical list of, of judgments. So I view all these as manifestations of a tribal psychology that has been cranked up to 10. There's still ways to go. If you go to 11 and 12, you know, the, the higher levels, then you've got civil war, you've got religious war, you've got violence, right? So we don't have to be there yet, but it's, it is a pathological state. That's an even more important reason why this metaphor of, or not a metaphor of critical thinking as a kind of martial art. I take very seriously because this environment is so toxic, is so hostile to critical thinking, to independent critical thought, that we need to teach people how and why it's harmful and how to protect themselves from it because it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And one of the casualties of this is not just you know, political instability, but we lose our individual intellectual autonomy. We become creatures of the political beast that we have joined tribes with. And when we've made that choice, we sacrifice other goods that are important to us, including and especially the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of wise choices, and the pursuit of independent critical thought.
I, I think, I think that that's important. It was part of my most recent sort of, you know, stuff I do, the videos I'm doing on the cost of tribalism and polarization is that I think I have an argument now for the danger of identifying strongly with any political group, any political ideology. Or I should say the argument is that there is a cost-benefit trade-off here. And what people don't appreciate is the cost. The benefits are obvious. If you join up with a political identity group, you get the benefits of solidarity, meaningfulness, cohorts. Are, you know, it's a wonderful social environment, but it also has the cost of narrowing the focus of your, your vision, distorting your perception of reality, distorting your perception of yourself, and especially of the world outside the tribal group. You literally see a different picture of the world that's less real, less true than you would be if you could perceive it from a more neutral standpoint. And, that, and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. We want to have accurate beliefs, accurate models of the world. And you run the risk of, of making judgments that are quite harmful. You run the risks of, of treating people horribly that may not, may not deserve it. It's like any type of identity you have should come with just a big warning label. Just be very careful. You're treading on dangerous territory there for sure. Well, what, one of my critical thinking principles is if you think of the core belief network, how big is your core? Because if your core is really big, it's vulnerable. It's like, how about this? Try to keep the core small. Keep your identity small. As small as you can and have a, a meaningful, functional, flourishing life. But having more of those beliefs in the intermediate range that are, they're important to me, but they're not going to change who I am if this turns out to be wrong. Be intentional about surveying how, how because that, that core is a target. It's a target. It says you are vulnerable. You, any, if I poke you there, you're going, to, you're going to react defensively. If your goal is, again, these are all conditional on you. If you, if you care about critical thinking, you should try to keep that, that core small. As small as reasonable. Cool. So maybe like last question, um, talking about critical thinking as a martial art, is street epistemology a part of this mixed martial arts? And how could it be improved in any way if it is? Well, I think, you know, the, the first part is yes, obviously the case. What you have is a, is a sort of well-developed in street epistemology, a well-developed set of techniques for engaging. It's a kind of, okay, I think of it as a soft persuasion technique that's calibrated to partic- so the particular goals, right? I mean, you want, you want to achieve certain outcomes with this technique. And so the, the methodology has been optimized, I think. I don't, I don't think I have any, any recommendations about doing it better, given the goals. Now, if the goals were different, if the goals were to change people's beliefs or to convert theists into atheists or vice versa, let's say, you know, which is not part of street epistemology, am, am I right? There isn't a sort of conversion mandate. No. No, no, it's not, it's not that, right? But if the goal was that, then the strategy would have to be different. I think that's, you know, Kevin, but that's a, that's a huge concern that people bring up about people who do street epistemology. I'd say that's where most of the concerns come in. It's that we have some sort of agenda that we're trying, that we are doing a persuasion technique and not necessarily an investigation technique. And personally, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. One, whether you think that's valid or not. And two, if that is valid, if, if like on some level we are trying to persuade people and you know what should we do about that i don't see any problem with think calling it a persuasion technique because persuasion is open-ended like persuade them to do what if you're persuading them to just sort of reconsider the foundations of a view they hold 
which is what you're doing, that's perfectly, you know, that's a, you're persuading them to do that. It's a persuasion technique. To call it purely investigative is probably, I can see some pe people thinking that that's not entirely truthful. If they read up on the sort of history of street epistemology and where it comes from, mm -hmm. you sort of know that this is, this is a bit like communists who uh, advocate for socialism and, and they know where they, they want this to head, right? You know, the past should be capitalism, <laughs> socialism, communism, but they don't want to be associated with communism. So they just <laughs> talk about the merits. I'm just exploring ideas about, you know, the public good and who owns property and stuff like that. But it's, it's kind of disingenuous, right? But uh, I, like, I like the idea of cataloging these different persuasion. These, I call these persuasion practices. And when they get codified in different traditions, I call them maybe persuasion guilds, if there's a social practice or um, like magic. I view as a tradition that's all about using techniques of persuasion to perform certain things. And so there's trade secrets about the, the focusing of attention and, and um, all, all kinds of things that are, you know, like psychologically really cool that are useful to know. And they've been refined to the point where, because they have a specific objective in mind and seeing the connection between the methodology and the objective, that's a cool technique combination. You put that in, in your toolbox, you've learned something or the street con people like the short cons and, and, the long cons. The study of con artistry is this really rich resource for persuasion psychology, but it's not also hypnosis, also these other sort of range of interesting, you know, I've done this stuff on the podcast earlier, the seduction community. Mm, pickup artists, um, yep. yeah, yeah. Pickup yeah. artists is like, there's, you know, uh, they are a persuasion practice. It's not a persuasion science, right? But it's a, it's a practice that has a sort of internal there's a lore to it. There are traditions. There are things that get passed down that are interesting. Say, for example, the religious persuasion side, when Mormons get instructed in how to present to the front door of people, or the use of things like testimonials. Like, I'm not going to tell you that why the Bible is, reading of the Bible is true. I'm just going to tell you my experience of how it's touched my life, right? That's a persuasion technique, Right. It's crafted for a certain effect, and it's used a lot because it's successful in enough cases that it's disarming, that it's, it's a kind of soft persuasion technique from that side. I like thinking about, you know, amassing as many of these, these are kind of mental models that you can, you can apply. And if you become familiar with them, then they become things you can pull out in different contexts. You can, where you can see the world through this lens and uh, I guess some people might be dispirited by it because they see persuasion everywhere. But I find it fascinating. I think it's uh, this is a very human thing we do. I kind of love it in the sense that it makes us very interesting. The risk is that what I don't think that it follows is that the pursuit of like philosophical ideals or truth or scientific rationality, that those somehow this harms that. I think the whole point of the martial arts thing and the argument ninja thing that I do is that, is that you have this dualism, this sort of, this Taoist idea of the very same set of cognitive tools that can be used for social persuasion can also be used to pursue goals of truth, objectivity, knowledge, wisdom, virtue, and have been. It's the very same set of tools. Those aren't different tools. The goals are different. 
and the social structure that has to be in place in order to enable that to make, to make it effective are different. But you can't really understand how scientific consensus is formed unless you understand persuasion within scientific communities. And you can't really understand how effective persuasion t- t- techniques are in like the persuasion guild world unless you see how they connect with reality, the reality of human nature. These aren't opposing camps. And part of my message is that let's embrace the duality of this, which is a very unusual position to hold in the critical thinking philosophy community for, for, for sure, where there has always been a long history of suspicion and skepticism about anything having to do with the psychology of persuasion. I'm wondering if you think that there are any groups or people who could do better at persuasion or communication techniques. Scientists come to mind, like maybe we, they could actually do a better job of explaining global warming to people or something along those lines. But have you ever like lamented that somebody's just really bad at this and they could do so much better or even a complete industry or science? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I was doing back at Iowa State University before I left was I was part of an argument studies group of which several members were doing communication and uh, persuasion about environmental issues. They were working on the problem of like the science communication problem. How do we present information in a way which is takes the information that they think is reliable and useful from the scientific community and puts it into public sphere in a way that the uptake will be positive. Um, part of out of that challenge that we have some of the best psychological and social science about the challenges of this, the paradoxes of science communication, where telling people, giving them more facts doesn't seem to have any effect or that, you know, we've learned a lot. But as a consequence, the talk about debiasing strategies has been refined now with, I mean, it's kind of in-house, but one of the things that they're working on is principles for disentangling the pros and cons of a particular scientific issue from the political valences that are associated with it. Once they're entangled, it's really hard to get climate change unentangled from liberal versus conservative politics. That's really hard to do. But there are rhetorical strategies for doing this, that you can shift people's focus. I mean, it's like having a wedge, communications wedge that somehow separates the issue from the politics. If you could find ways to do that, boy, that's, that's helpful. I don't know if it's going to be helpful in the bigger scheme of things. I think the challenge is enormous. But in terms of lessons for interpersonal communication, like the same disentangling strategy could actually be used, for, for example, to get someone, let's say, a very strong critic of gun control laws. And we have the shooting that happened at New Zealand as a case. But they're still, they, they just get their backs up. As soon as you talk about banning assault rifles, it's like, no. So they've politicized, you know, they have a whole set of values and, and you know, views associated with, with that issue. It'd be interesting to find ways of putting a wedge in between the issue of the positive and negative social consequences of gun control laws, how it reduces violence or not, and the other set of worries, the other political and you know, social worries. So this is part of my, the stuff that I, I, I look at, I study, and if things come up that are useful, I like to share them on the podcast or share them. You know, It's a rich field and we could spend all a lifetime, unfortunately, doing this. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge topic, definitely. Awesome. Well, I uh, wanted to thank you so much, Kevin, for, for being on our show. This was amazing. I, I really loved it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, guys. I really enjoyed this, and uh, it's a pleasure. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. That was really cool. I've, I've, I've been noticing your work and I catch it every once in a while. And I'm always impressed by the, the amount of effort you put into your work and your videos and they're very helpful. So please keep it up. I appreciate that. Thanks very much. Yeah. So you want to share where people can find you? Yeah. So, okay. The, um, the current version of the Critical Theory Academy at criticalthinkacademy.com is my video tutorial site that aggregates the videos I've done over the past 10 years or so is there. You can sign up there. The YouTube channel, you can just search for Kevin Delplante there. If you want to get updates, I, I post podcast episodes and new videos there. My main hub site, kevindelplante.com, is going to be more active in the next short while. I have the blog there. I have the Argument Age podcast episodes there with the show notes. But I also am actually in the process of moving the videos over to that site. I want to sort of consolidate my web presence right now, which is kind of scattered. I don't have that launched yet, but it's, it's getting there. It's close. One of the options, for example, I'm going to have within the new platform is at, a, at one level, you'll have all the videos. At another level, you have the videos, plus all the, all the videos will have an audio podcast associated with them. So if you like listening to podcasts, and I've got 12 hours of content on this topic, that otherwise you'd have to sit in front of a screen to watch, but you'd rather listen to in the car, that'll be available now. And there's going to be a Facebook community group, like our Argument Ninja Dojo Facebook group. So again, if you subscribe to YouTube channel or subscribe to the podcast and just search for Argument Ninja in iTunes or whoever, wherever, then you'll certainly get updates there. Awesome. Sweet. Can't wait for it. Love it. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. And uh, awesome. Thank you, guys. That's the end of our show. I'm Reed again from Cordial Curiosity. You can find me on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. Where can people find you, Anthony? Head over to Twitter. Let's do a search for my name, Anthony Magnabosco, or I'm at Magnabosco, and I think I'm at Magnabosco210 on Instagram, Facebook. Oh, my YouTube channel is also Magnabosco210. Duh. Leave me a comment on one of my videos. Let me know what you think. I'm trying new stuff. As for me, you can find me on YouTube at Truth Wanted. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Objectively Dan. That's probably the best way to contact me. Although if you intend to do something longer than a Twitter message, I also have an email address with the ACA. It is truth at atheist-community.org. If you have any inquiries about the show and uh, my show and Truth One and stuff too, definitely check that out. Awesome. And thanks. Until next time, see you later. Stay frosty. <laughs>